Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at how the celebrations surrounding the coronation of Christian II as King of Sweden descended into homicidal chaos when Archbishop Gustav Trolle demanded that virtually the whole Swedish national leadership be punished for heresy because they had ousted him, locked him up and torn down one of his castles. King Christian was happy to oblige and had more than 100 people executed, including several members of the Swedish high nobility as well as two bishops. On his way home to Denmark, he stopped along the route and arrested and executed even more notable Swedes. The mass execution in Stockholm is known to history as the Stockholm bloodbath, and the whole affair rendered the king the epithet Christian the Tyrant in Swedish historiography. But sticks and stones and all that, Christian thought that by massacring such a large part of the Swedish nobility, the remaining survivors wouldn't dare to oppose him. That way, his admittedly harsh actions in Stockholm would have secured the continuation of the Kalmar Union for decades, if not for generations. Today, we'll have a look at the political fallout of the Stockholm bloodbath and how well King Christian's calculations lined up with reality. Episode 71, Breaking Up. At the same time as the corpses of the convicted heretics were still burning outside Stockholm in November 1520, and the king was busy spinning the event in letters sent out to both things and the Pope, couriers were sent out throughout the country with new rules for the peasants. Taxes would be going up, and they would no longer be allowed to carry weapons. From Christian's perspective, this made a lot of sense. He desperately needed the money to pay for the three-year-long war to conquer Sweden. And since the Swedish army that had resisted the Union army for so long and with such success had consisted mostly of peasants, he wanted to make sure that it would be much more difficult to arm these peasants in the future. The peasants, on the other hand, did not see it as a reasonable shift in policy. They were outraged. As far as they were concerned, the right for free men to bear arms was as old as civilization itself, probably older. No one had the authority to take that right from them. And what was all this nonsense about higher taxes? No one had ever liked news of higher taxes, especially not if those taxes were supposed to cover the conquest of your own country by an invading army. It was this, much more than the news of the butchering of a few dozen noblemen in Stockholm, that made the Swedish peasants put their collective foot down and decide that they'd had enough of this new king. Already in December 1520, as Christian was traveling south through Sweden on the way back to Denmark, killing off real and imagined enemies as he went, reports of resistance started to drop in to the royal chancery, mostly attacks and even killings of tax collectors and other officials, as well as plundering of grain collected as tax. The acts of resistance were sporadic and uncoordinated, but they occurred in many different parts of the country, Småland in the south, Westrogothia in the west, and Dalarna in the north. The surviving members of the Swedish Council of the Realm were also unhappy. They had no real power anymore. The authority to run the country had been placed in the hands of four bishops, two from Denmark, one Swede loyal to the king, and the archbishop Gustav Trolle, who ostensibly had been behind the bloodbath. All commands of castles had also been placed in the hands of Danes and other foreigners. 
the Swedish nobility was in a far worse position than they had even been under Erik of Pomerania, when they had been unhappy enough to join Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson's rebellion. Thanks to all the reports that arrived at a steady trickle, Christian was aware that there might be trouble brewing in Sweden again, despite his culling of the national leadership. It's true that on the face of it, Christian's situation was still strong. All over Sweden, Danish and German commanders held the castles, but they did so with the help of hired foreign troops, and the king didn't have enough money to pay them, which meant that many of them had to be let go. That, in turn, meant that Christian would be in some real trouble if someone were to unite the unhappy population, a new Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson, who could focus this widespread anger and channel it into a new rebellion. And despite Christian's best efforts to kill off as many potential future rebel leaders as possible, there were still a few candidates around for the job of the 16th century version of Engelbrecht. One of them was a 24-year-old guy called Gustav Eriksson Vasa, the son of Erik Johansson Vasa, the irritable nobleman who had insisted on being let into Stockholm Castle after the gates had been locked, only then to be executed in the bloodbath. In 1518, young Gustav Vasa had been one of the noblemen sent as hostages to Christian II. You may remember this incident from episode 69, The Final Showdown, where Stensture Jr. and Christian II agreed to exchange hostages as a sign of goodwill, but Christian never sent over any Danes, even though he did bring the Swedish hostages with him to Denmark, where they were kept as prisoners. During his time in Danish captivity, Gustav Vasa stayed at Karlö Castle in Jutland. The Danish nobleman who was supposed to guard him seems to have been a nice enough guy, and the young prisoner had a relatively comfortable time, even though Gustav Vasa would later complain that the food he was given wasn't as good as he was used to. After about a year, Gustav decided to escape. Not because of bad food, but because of what he heard people talk about. The Danes were planning to invade Sweden. And if they were successful, they were going to subjugate the country. Sweden would no longer be an equal kingdom within the Kalmar Union, but a vassal state subservient to Denmark. I think there's a fair chance that at least part of this is inserted into the account after the fact, but who knows. Anyway, since the Danish nobleman who was supposed to guard him was such a nice guy, he didn't keep Gustav Vasa locked up at the castle, so it was relatively easy for him to escape, which he did and managed to make it to the leading Hanseatic city of Lübeck. In Lübeck, as in most other Hanseatic cities, Christian II wasn't particularly popular. People worried about the Danish king's ambitions to create a new Scandinavian trading network with Copenhagen as the center to compete with the Hanseatic League. We've talked about these plans in past episodes, including last time. But when Christian demanded to get Gustav Asa back, claiming he was an escaped prisoner, Gustav didn't trust the leaders of Lübeck to stand firm against the Danish demands. He decided to return to Sweden, and was shipped back across the Baltic Sea by friends in Lübeck. He landed south of Kalmar on May 31, 1520. At the time, the city was under siege by Danish forces, but apparently the siege wasn't all that effective, because Gustav Vasa managed to sneak in. He tried to agitate for continued resistance, but the townspeople weren't interested. They were sick of war, and thought Christian couldn't be much worse than any other king. Disappointed, Gustav Vasa snuck out of Kalmar again and traveled through Småland, trying to get the peasants to rise up. But they too were sick of war and didn't believe his stories about the perfidy of Christian and that he'd turned them all into slaves. To them, Gustav was nothing but a troublemaker and they chased him away. 
As you know by now, that winter saw the dramatic and ultimately successful Danish invasion of Sweden over land. When the war ended, a triumphant Christian II issued his amnesty and invitation to his coronation in November 1520. Gustav Vasa was actually one of those mentioned by name in the proclamation of amnesty. And he happened to be staying at the home of a local nobleman in Småland when the invitation to the coronation was issued. His host tried to convince Gustav to come along to Stockholm for the festivities, but Gustav Vasa refused. He didn't trust King Christian, and he certainly wasn't going to participate in his victory celebration. Instead, Gustav tried to convince his host to go with him to Dalarna, the region where Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson had been from, to start a new rebellion. His host declined, and then went their separate ways. Going north, Gustav stopped at Gripsholm, a castle on Lake Malaran, west of Stockholm, where the ex-archbishop resided. That is the archbishop who stepped down and appointed Gustav Trolle as his replacement. Gustav Vasa talked to the old priest, and he too tried to convince him to go to Stockholm and make peace with King Christian. The war was over, he said, and his young guest would have a bright future ahead of him in a peaceful Sweden ruled by the benevolent Christian II. Gustav Vasa was skeptical, and if later, and biased, sources are to be believed, they were in the middle of this conversation when the news of the bloodbath reached them. This was, of course, the ultimate proof that Gustav Vasa had been right all along, and that all the Swedish nobles who'd gone to the coronation, including his father, had been duped by the Danish king, whose real plans were now revealed. According to the source, again, quite biased, the old ex-archbishop was so embarrassed when his own foolish trust in King Christian had proven to be misplaced that he didn't know what to say. Gustav Vasa wasn't yet 25 years old when he learned that his father had been executed at the bloodbath and that his sister and mother, Christina Jelenshana's half-sister, by the way, had been taken prisoners and brought to Denmark. Thanks to his suspicions and lack of trust, Gustav Vasa was basically the last man standing in the network of nobles that had surrounded Stensture Jr. As he saw it, it was high time to step into the large shoes of the dead steward and to organize the resistance against King Christian. From Gripsholm, Gustav Vasa continued north to Vodalana. Our only source to what happened there is a well-known, but not very reliable, chronicle written to glorify Gustav Vasa's life. The already glorifying chronicle has been augmented over time with folk tales about Gustav Vasa's adventures. Many of the episodes are entertaining, but few, if any, are true. The chronicle tells us that Gustav Vasa reached the house of a friend from his university days, who lived in southern Dalarna. Gustavasa was traveling incognito, dressed like a peasant, since the Danes were after him by now. But apparently he was wearing his regular clothes underneath, which must have been quite bulky and uncomfortable. But it's necessary for the plot because it enabled a servant girl to catch a glimpse of gold brocade under the simple peasant garb. This, of course, made her realize that her master's guest wasn't some ordinary peasant. This spooked Gustav's old friend, who refused to help him, instead asking him to leave. Gustav Vasa continued on his journey, but was unfortunate enough to fall into a lake. Luckily enough, a local farmer helped him up and took him home to let Gustav dry. But the farmer betrayed him and set off to alert the Danish authorities to the whereabouts of the escaped nobleman. The farmer's wife wasn't as deceitful as her husband though, and when she saw her husband leave, she got suspicious. She warned Gustav Vasa that he had to leave immediately 
and since he had to do so discreetly, he climbed out through the privy, that is, the toilet. Quick-thinking and patriotic women are actually common in several of these apocryphal vignettes. In one instance, Danish soldiers supposedly arrived at a farm when Gustav was there, but the farmer's wife saved him from discovery by slapping him and yelling at him to go to work, convincing the soldiers that he was nothing but a lowly servant and not an aristocrat on the run. In another story, a farmer's wife hid Gustav Vasa in the kitchen cellar, then placed a bathtub on the hatch, blocking the only entrance to the hiding place until the soldiers left. Around Christmas time, Gustav Vasa reached the town of Mura, some 300 kilometers northwest of Stockholm. Here, he spoke to the locals, trying to convince them to join his rebellion against King Christian. He generously offered to lead them to liberty from Danish slavery, but the townspeople here were as skeptical as everywhere else. They didn't see the point in rising up against King Christian. And so, a no-doubt disappointed Gustav Vasa had no other choice but to continue on his journey. He had failed to start a rebellion, and now he could only focus on trying to save his own skin, escaping the wrath of King Christian by trying to cross the border into Norway. But soon after Gustav Vasa had left Mora, a man reached the town and told of Christian II's latest exploits, traveling through the country, executing people, demanding higher taxes, and confiscating people's weapons. This made the locals change their minds about the benefit of a rebellion. They set out to catch up with Gustav Vasa on his way to the Norwegian border, and when they did, they begged him to return with them to Mora. They would make him the leader of a rebellion to oust Christian the tyrant. It wasn't too difficult to convince Gustav Vasa, who readily agreed. Upon his return to Mura, he was declared the leader of the uprising against the Danish tyrant. In the early 20th century, patriotic fans of Gustav Vasa and his adventures in Dalarna had the idea of creating a cross-country skiing competition, covering the same distance Gustav Vasa is supposed to have travelled before the people of Mura caught up with him and convinced him to turn around. To this very day, more than a hundred years later, thousands of people still ski the approximately 90 kilometers on the first Sunday of March every year. More or less at the same time as Gustav Vasa was elected leader of the rebellion in Dalarna, things started to move in other parts of the country as well. King Christian had earned many new enemies in Småland in the wake of the executions of real or imagined op opponents in that region. The uprising in Småland broke out before the king had even crossed the border into Denmark. In fact, it started even before Gustav Vasa got his rebellion going. The flames of the uprising spread quickly throughout the northern parts of the country, and Christian's troops had to start withdrawing gradually southward over the winter. When Vesteros fell to the troops under Gustav Vasa's command in the spring of 1521, Christian II sent a message to the Swedish rebel leader that he wanted to talk terms for a truce. But Gustav Vasa rebuffed him. He didn't trust the Danish king, and didn't think that there was any point negotiating with him. By May 1521, all of Sweden north of Lake Mälaren was in the hands of the rebels. Large parts of Småland and western Sweden were also under Gustav Vasa's control. At this point, one after the other, members of the Swedish council started to abandon King Christian and join the rebellion. In the summer, leading nobles in other parts of the country also started to turn on the king, like rats abandoning the sinking ship. Even the bishop Hans Brask from Linköping, the cleric who had been saved from the bloodbath thanks to his stunt with the note under the seal, joined Gustav Vasa's side. In parallel, nobles who remained loyal to the king started to leave Sweden for Denmark. 
That was probably a smart move, because some of those who stayed, but whose loyalty to Christian was well known, were killed. Among those who left was Gustav Trolle, the archbishop, the man probably most unlikely to survive a successful rebellion if he'd stay in Sweden. In August that year, representatives from the Swedish nobility gathered in Vastena and elected Gustav Vasa captain of the realm. That's the same title Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson had been given almost 100 years before. Gustav was now the undisputed leader of the nationwide rebellion against King Christian II. By the end of 1521, Gustav Vasa controlled all of Sweden west of the Baltic Sea, except for a few key places, namely Stockholm, Kalmar and Elfsborg on the west coast. The new captain of the realm knew that he didn't stand a chance to capture these strongholds. He didn't have the professional army required to take properly defended castles. All he had was a small number of mercenaries. The rest of his army was made up by the usual Swedish peasant force. To make matters worse, the Danes still upheld its blockade against Swedish ports. The Danish fleet was also used both to supply the Danish-held castles from the sea and to attack Swedish coastal communities, more or less at will. So Gustav Vasa may have controlled almost all of Sweden, but he stood no real chance of winning the war as things were. He couldn't dislodge the last Danes without professional troops and a fleet, and for that he needed money and aid from abroad. Fortunately for Gustav Vasa, he had friends abroad, and even more fortunately, they didn't like Christian II any more than he did. So in the spring of 1522, Gustav Vasa turned to Lübeck. He asked for ships, troops, artillery and money in order to deal a decisive blow to the Danish forces and win the war against King Christian. As you know by now, the King of Denmark had few friends in Lübeck. Ever since Christian I, the Danish crown had tried to redirect trade away from the Hansa and to Copenhagen, and now Christian II was trying to ally his kingdom with the Dutch against the Hanseatic League. That meant that Lübeck was eager for Christian not to succeed in his efforts to retake Sweden, since that would almost certainly mean that they'd lose their excellent trading connections in Stockholm and in the Swedish mining region further inland. In other words, when they received Gustav Vasa's request, Lübeck explained that they'd be happy to support Sweden financially and militarily if Gustav Vasa promised the Hanseatic city rights and privileges, including toll-free trade, after the war was won. Gustav Vasa accepted, and Lübeck was quick to supply what he needed. The effect of the assistance could be seen almost immediately. The Swedish forces managed to put the remaining Danish-held castles under siege, and the Lübeck fleet harassed the Danish ships, making it tricky to resupply the besieged castles from the sea. With the help from Lübeck, Gustav Vasa's troops managed to take the remaining castles. First Kalmar and Elfsborg, and in the end also the ones in Finland, even though they held out the longest. Only Stockholm remained in Danish hands when dramatic news arrived from Denmark. After the debacle in Sweden, the Danish Council of the Realm had seen its chance to get rid of the unpopular Christian II, and they had decided to take that chance and run with it. They didn't like the king's reforms, his laws, his taxes, his favouring of talent over nobility, and now he had failed to keep Sweden, so he was weak. In January 1523, a meeting of nobles in Jutland signed a letter rescinding their fealty to Christian. But you can't just get rid of a king like that, you need someone to replace him, so the Danish nobles turned to his uncle, the Duke Frederick of Schleswig-Holstein. They wanted to keep the plans to oust Christian II 
and the letter they'd signed a secret from the king until they had had the chance to gather more support. And that makes sense, considering the king's track record when it came to treating his vanquished opponents. But by chance, the king found out about it sooner than they had expected and hoped. According to a later chronicle, the trustworthiness of which we can discuss later so we won't ruin a good story, King Christian was staying in Vele on the east coast of Jutland when a member of the council passed by. The council member was on the way to Frederick to officially ask if he was willing to replace Christian as king, so he probably wasn't too keen on spending time with the monarch. But he couldn't just pass by Vele without popping in to see the king. That would have made the already quite paranoid Christian way too suspicious. So the nobleman with the important mission had to stay and call on the king, but of course said nothing of the real reason for his being out and about. The two men had a pleasant meal together, and then the council member set off again. He was no doubt relieved that he'd gotten away, and he must have been in a hurry to leave, because he forgot his gloves. That can be annoying if you don't like your hands to get cold, but it was worse than that because he'd hidden the secret and very treasonous letter to Duke Frederick in one of his gloves, where the king found it and was alerted to the plot to get rid of him. We don't really know if it happened like this or in some other more plausible way, but King Christian did soon realize that he'd definitely lost the support of the Danish council and that civil war was at hand. In case you were wondering, Duke Frederick was the son of Christian I, and perhaps you'd think that he'd hesitate to stab his nephew in the back by participating in toppling him and then taking his crown. But you'd be wrong. Christian had made sure to alienate his uncle by colluding with the Holy Roman Emperor to rob Frederick of his title as Duke, and back in 1520, the king had even threatened to send his successful army from Sweden to chase after his uncle. So Frederick was more than happy to join the rebellious Danish nobles in their attempt to kick Christian out. Now Frederick invaded Denmark at the head of an army made up of soldiers from his duchy of Holstein as well as Lübeck. As we've established before, the Hanseatic city was no friend of Christian II and when a chance to rob him of his Danish crown as well presented itself, they contributed soldiers. The army crossed the Danish border into Jutland and as they moved north, Danish forces under the leadership of rebellious nobles also joined in. When they reached Viborg in northern Jutland, not the Viborg in eastern Finland, Frederick was declared King Frederick I of Denmark. To fend off Frederick's invasion, Christian needed more soldiers. Fast. He was still in Vele in Jutland, but the, he only had a hundred soldiers with him. That's hardly enough to defeat an invading army. The king decided he had to go to the islands to raise more troops. And so, on a cold February night in 1523, Christian set out on a boat across the narrow little belt strait toward the island of Funen. But at this crucial point in his life, with the Danish nobility in open revolt and his uncle invading, King Christian lost all his decisiveness. That night, the king crossed the strait between Jutland and Funen over a dozen times, changing his mind about where to go and what to do. At daybreak, he was closest to the island Funen, so he got off there, giving up Jutland to the rebels. Instead, Christian made it for the island of Zealand and Copenhagen, where he hoped to regroup and rally his supporters. But the rebellion spread, more and more troops gathered against him, and peasants started to refuse to pay taxes to Christian. Within weeks, he had lost control over most of the kingdom. In April 1523, he made his mind up. 
after having received yet another gloomy report about how well the rebellion was going for his uncle Frederick, Christian stood up, looked out the window at a weather vane, and said, When the wind turns, I'll set sail. Then he gave orders to start preparing for immediate departure. In a few days, most of his household was packed up, including as much of the royal treasury as he could get his hands on. On April 13th, Christian boarded the ship The Lion, it was one of 16 ships he had prepared in Copenhagen Harbour. His wife and the three children joined him, as did several servants and advisers, including Sigbrit, the mother of the king's dead mistress. All in all, some 60 people, the core of his court, boarded the ships, and at about 2pm they left Copenhagen, sailing north through Øresund toward the North Atlantic. Christian had left one of his last remaining loyalists as the commander in Copenhagen, but that didn't help much. When the old king had fled the country, the remaining parts of Denmark soon surrendered to the new king, Frederick I. But just because he'd won the brief war and was now king of Denmark, that didn't mean that it would be all sunshine and smooth sailing for King Frederick from now on. In order to become king, he had been forced to sign away most of his powers to the Danish nobility. He wasn't allowed to make big decisions without consulting the Council of the Realm. If he acted against their will, they had the right to oust him. This position was exceptionally weak, some even thought it humiliatingly so. That's why some called Frederick I the prisoner of the nobility, or even the slave of the nobility. Luckily, the new king, who was 51 years old when he ascended the throne, wasn't particularly ambitious or visionary like his nephew had been. Instead, he was calm, mild-mannered and pliable, content with letting the Aristos govern as long as he got to keep his crown. He even spent most of his time in his old residence, Gottorp Castle in Schleswig, where he had lived as a duke. I suspect the Danish nobility didn't mind one bit that the king was absent, letting them rule in his name. They quickly started to roll back Christian II's reforms, especially the law code that had limited their power and given liberties to the peasants. Copies of the code were burned in public and declared unjust and a menace to societal peace and stability, by which they meant their own power and influence. Meanwhile, the Danish peasants were forced back under the aristocratic yoke. There were also attempts made to re-establish the Kalmar Union. Feelers were sent out to Sweden, suggesting that the two sides meet and try to hammer out an agreement about how to re-establish the Union now that Christian the Tyrant was gone. Frederick even tried to tempt Lübeck to ditch Gustav Vasa and rescind their support for the Swedes. If they did so, and instead joined forces with him fighting the Swedes, the new king offered Lübeck toll free trade in all of the re established Kalmar Union, not only in Sweden, as they had been promised by Gustav Vasa. But Lübeck declined the offer. They preferred to break up the Kalmar Union because they thought it would be better for them in the long run to keep Scandinavia weak and divided, even though it meant toll-free trade only in Sweden in the short term. The Swedes, meanwhile, reacted to the Danish suggestion that they re-establish the Kalmar Union by upgrading Gustav Vasa from captain of the realm to king of Sweden. The election took place in Strängnäs on June 6, 1523. Because of this, and some other things we'll get into eventually concerning a now-defunct constitution from the early 19th century, this date, June 6th, later developed into a national holiday in Sweden. The election of Gustav Vasa was witnessed by members of the Lübeck City Council. They were very happy about this development. If Gustav Vasa remained in charge of Sweden, they'd be able to get their money back. 
And as an additional bonus, it would all but guarantee continued divisions within Scandinavia, making it easier for the Hanseatic League to operate in the region. At this point, the Kalmar Union was dead, and it would not be resurrected. People at the time didn't know it yet, but no new large-scale attempt would ever be made to re-establish the Union Queen Margaret had founded in the late 1300s. Both Denmark and Sweden had new kings, and the two countries would never again be ruled by the same monarch. The Kalmar Union finally and definitely collapsed because of Christian II and his heavy-handed policies in Sweden, both by killing off such a large part of the country's leading figures and thereby alienating the majority of the survivors, but also in his harsh attempts to bring the Swedish peasantry to heel. But all of that was only the trigger, the straw that really broke the camel's back. As you know by now, the 15th century had been plagued by repeated rebellions and Swedish attempts at getting away from Danish domination and re-establishing an independent Sweden. In reality, the Kalmar Union had been doomed for a long time, because it was only beneficial for Denmark. It only served Danish interests, and the Swedes would never accept that state of affairs. They would continue to rebel against what they saw as Danish oppression, and therefore it was only a question of time, until they would manage to break free. That does not, however, mean that the Kalmar Union was doomed from the beginning, and that a political entity like this didn't stand a chance of long-term survival. Sure, there were challenges, not least in terms of its size, making it difficult to rule, but the Union might have thrived if various Danish kings at its helm would have been smarter about it. If they had made the Swedish aristocracy feel that they too benefited from the Union by giving plush jobs as commanders and governors to Swedes as well as Danes, not only in Sweden, but in all the kingdoms, they would most likely not have been inclined to revolt. After all, why rebel against a system that you benefit from? Instead, generations of intermittent conflict bred ill will and distrust between Swedes and Danes. Because of all the years of fighting, the border nobility, once the glue that held the Kalmar Union together, had changed character. It's true that there were still some families with relatives on both sides of the border, but by the early 16th century, each individual nobleman held almost all his land in one country and had his economic interests, and therefore his loyalties, there. All the fighting and the increasingly clear opposing national interests also led to the growth of nationalist propaganda, initially in Sweden, slandering foreigners and their Swedish collaborators. This type of propaganda primarily influenced the elites, obviously, but there's a certain trickle-down effect once it, this type of discourse became common enough, even if the peasants may not have cared initially. All in all, the one-sided benefits, the fighting and the increasingly nationalist discourse meant that the Union had fewer and fewer supporters outside of Denmark. This, in turn, made it increasingly likely that the Union would collapse, until it finally did. The collapse was caused by Sweden breaking free from the Kalmar Union. Among Norwegians, the Union wasn't any more popular than among the Swedes, but Norway was too weak to do what Sweden did, even though they tried. The weakness of Norway, a topic we've discussed before, would be confirmed later when the country was downgraded from an equal and technically independent kingdom in union with Denmark to little more than a Danish province. A final contributing factor to the demise of the Kalmar Union at this point, in the first half of the 16th century, is that Denmark was rocked by political turmoil that seriously limited its ability to realistically reclaim control over Sweden. That turmoil didn't end when Frederick I became king. And next time, 
we'll continue to look at those developments. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.